You're listening to another message from Generation City Church. I want to share with you out of uh, 1 Kings this morning just a short passage about the prophet Elisha and his calling from heaven. The prophet Elisha and his high calling from heaven. And in verse 19, we read, So Elijah, not Elisha, but Elijah, went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, first let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye and then I will go with you. It's interesting, he knew exactly what had just taken place. He, he knew what that meant. He knew who Elijah was. He knew this man of God, the anointing on his life, the calling on his life, the power of heaven even on his life. And he understood culturally that for a man of God like that to take off his cloak and throw it across, across the shoulders of another man was, I'm passing my mantle to you. So he had a full understanding, and that's why he, he kind of freaked out a little bit and said, look, I'm happy to come, but let me go and at least deal with some affairs before I leave. He says, let me first go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I have done to you. Give consideration to the weightiness of the call that I have just placed upon your life. A call that has come directly from heaven. The chapter prior to this, Elijah is in the cave running from Jezebel. He's crying out to God, feeling like he was alone, feeling like he was the only one left. And the Lord begins to speak to him about a future plan and a strategy for the continuation of the purpose of God. And he points out Elisha and says, I want you to go and I want you to give him your mantle so it was a call that came from heaven. It was a high calling in that sense. And Elijah throws the cloak over Elisha's shoulders. And Elijah says, you go back and you deal with your affairs, but I want you to give serious consideration to what I have just done to you. I want you to not take this lightly, Elisha. I want you to truly take this to prayer and consider what, what this means, what, what price this might come at, what, what uh, challenges might lie before you if you choose to take up this mantle because you see Elisha didn't have to take it he said you go and consider it you don't have to take this you can ignore the call of God if you like but if you choose to follow it you need to follow this thing with your eyes open so he does that he goes back and Elijah returned to his oxen and this is what I want you to take notice of he returned to his oxen and he slaughtered them he used the wood from his plow to build a fire to roast their flesh he passed around the meat to the townspeople and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. You know, over the last couple of weeks that I've, I've shared with you, I, I've been talking a little bit about the challenges that come with being a Christ follower. I've talked to you about some of the storms that you will face. And even this morning, Margot, in, in her emceeing of our service, you know, referenced uh, John chapter 16, verse 33, in the world you will have trouble. We've got to come to terms with that. In the world, you will have trouble. It didn't say, you know, now that you've got me, you just pray you avoid the trouble and I'll look after you and I'll steer you in a path that stays away from all trouble as long as you pray. It doesn't say that. It just says you need to know that this calling that I've placed upon your life will bring trouble. It will bring heartache. And the calling that 
that we are called to, the path that leads to life, the narrow path that Jesus spoke about. And I spoke a little bit about this a few weeks ago. You know, broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there are that find it. Why? Because initially it's a comfortable road. It's wide. It's, it's spacious. There's room for everybody and it's comfortable. There's no winding paths. There's no obstacles. There's no valleys or crevices to get through. There's no dangerous points. It's wide, it's broad, and it's open. But ultimately it will lead to destruction, Jesus said. But narrow is the way and difficult is the path. So we've got to understand as Christians, it's not all a bed of roses. We, we, we follow Jesus and sometimes it brings pain. And, you know, this path that leads to life, it's not always a walk in the park. It, it has its seasons where it's, it's fresh, it's exciting, it's, it's sun-filled. S-U-N-N and S-O-N, his presence is strong and, and you feel his hand of blessing in your life. This is very echoey up here, Luke. Is that, is that echoey out there or is it okay? Because I can put up with it if you can. You know, it's, it's, it's a life that does bring its seasons of good times and fruitfulness and, and breakthrough. But, but it's not always a walk in the park. This, this life we are called to at times can be and will be a life-rattling, heart-revealing journey. And I, and I say the words heart-revealing journey because I, I, I believe... From my understanding of the Bible, the Word of God, which is our, our benchmark for life. It's our guide. It's our, it's our map. It's, our, it's not just a revelation of God. It's all that. But it's also our guide for life. I believe that the Bible reveals enough for me to know that God will, in fact, bring pain into my life to reveal what's in my heart. Because he's more interested in transforming me into the image of his son and rooting out all that sin and brokenness in this world has, has brought into my life. And the only way he can sometimes bring to the surface the brokenness and the issues that are in my heart is by putting pressure on me. It's by squeezing me. You know, we often, we're really good at this. We, are, we, we often justify our bad behavior by just saying, look, I'm just not myself at the moment. But the truth is, when you're under pressure, that's when you really are yourself. Because when you're under pressure, what's inside of you then comes out. And if it's ugly, what comes out, what needs to happen is for us then to go to Jesus and say, I, I didn't know that was in there. But this pain that I felt, this experience that I had, this issue that I faced, this storm, this challenge has brought to light something that was buried inside of me. And I want you to deal with that. Search me, know me, try me, see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So I, I believe that this life we are called to live, this path we are called to navigate and walk upon is, is at times bone rattling, life rattling, faith rattling, but it's heart revealing. And, and if we don't navigate this path well, if we don't anticipate this path well, then we will shipwreck our destiny. And I believe shipwreck ultimately our faith. But if we, we navigate it and we handle it well, it will, my friend, take us to a far deeper level of trusting God than we've ever known. It, it, will, it will take us to a place of profound hope. You know, many of us come from a place of hopelessness. We come to Jesus and we just feel hopeless. But then as you journey, as you trust, as you go through the storms hand in hand with him, as you learn to hear his voice, as you learn to follow his lead, even when you can't see his hand, as you learn to trust his heart in the process, it will lead you to a place of profound hope 
where you will know that I, my hope is in my God. My hope is in him and his promises. And it will also take you to a place of incredible love for God that no attack or assault will ever take away from you. And no, no measure of loss that you might incur will ever sabotage that love for God. If we navigate the path well, it will strengthen us. It will deepen our relationship with God. But unfortunately for many, many, many people who, who say a sinner's prayer and surrender their life to Jesus, they don't navigate the path well and they shipwreck their faith and many fall by the wayside like the seed in the parable of the sower. Some fell by the rocky places, the birds came and ate them up and it didn't take root. Some fell in the, among the thorns and the cares of this world are the thorns, Jesus said. And they rise up and they choke the word and we, we just walk away from our faith with, with, with disappointment in our heart. But if we navigate the journey well, we will in fact go to whole new levels of hope, experience a whole new level of trust in God and, and go to a whole new place of loving him where our love will be so solid that nothing will dislodge that love. Nothing will shift us. And the only way I believe, and this is what I want to share with you today, the only way that I believe that we can effectively stay on course and resist the temptation to flee to safer ground. Because when a dark time comes, we want to get around it. When a storm is, appears on the horizon, we want to avoid it at all cost. But I, I am a firm believer that sometimes those storms are sent by God. Sometimes those issues are sent to do a work in us. And, and the only way to get it around avoiding derailing our faith, shipwrecking our faith, is to anticipate the assaults that will inevitably come. And I think that's what Jesus was trying to do in, in John 16. In this world, you will have trouble. Guys, I want you to get this. I want you to anticipate this. I want you to know that storms will come, challenges will come, and they're designed to make you stronger. They're designed to strengthen the resolve in your soul. They're designed to increase your level of faith. You see, we all want more faith, but we don't want the experience that requires faith to be activated. David McCracken says often, we all want to walk on water, but none of us want to get out of the boat. And it is so true with the area of our faith. You know, in the deserts and in the valleys through which the narrow path takes us, we will pass through the dangers of disappointment, powerlessness, and doubt. Those three areas, key things that the devil will use to derail our faith, those three realities have the potential of pulling faith, hope, and love out of your life faster than probably anything else. Disappointment, powerlessness, and doubt. I want to talk to you today particularly about disappointment. Disappointment and the loss of our faith. You know, the power of unmet expectation to undermine our faith is often underestimated until we face a significant disappointment, till we face a significant setback, till we face a, a significant loss in our life. The power of unmet expectation. Has, has more power in our life than we give credit to. We will, in our journey of faith, face the very real possibility of embracing disappointment with both God and the people around us. It's inevitable. It will, it will happen. In regard to our walk with God, I think too many of us, if we were truly honest, and we did some soul searching, and we sat quietly and process this in the presence of God. I think 
Too many of us, if we were honest, would have to say we came to Jesus. We came to the Lord. We, we prayed a sinner's prayer. We responded to an altar call or to the call of a preacher to surrender your life to Jesus. We came with what I would call unholy expectation. Unholy expectation, unholy anticipation. You know, do we simply see him as nothing more than an answer to our floundering situations or as a hopeful roadway to the fulfillment of our own dreams? And I think if we were really honest, many of us would say, is this what Jesus will do in my life? Is this what he will give me? Is this the difference he will make? Is this, is this the road he will take? Is this the blessing that will unfold if I surrender my life to Jesus? Well, I want this Jesus in my life. If the, but I think if we were told from the very outset, give your life to Jesus today and all the pain and trouble will come flooding into your life within 24 hours, guaranteed. I don't know that we'd have too many people respond. But I think if we were truly open before God, we'd have to understand that the narrow path the Christian is called to walk is fraught with danger. It's fraught with danger. I was reading yesterday, Luke chapter 24, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Talk about unholy expectation. Jesus has just risen from the dead. Nobody knew at this point in time. And some of the women, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and a whole group of women. And it always is the women that are more caring than the men. But the women go to the tomb with spices to, to take on the process of whatever it is they did in that custom and that culture. I haven't done enough study. You need Pastor John to explain that one to you. He's more of a deep thinker of the word than I am. But they went to the tomb. And the Bible tells us in Luke 24, they found the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. And they were a little taken aback by it. They stood there staring into the tomb. The grave clothes are on the slab. The stones moved. And they're beginning to wonder, where is he? What's happened to him? Who stole the body? And then suddenly appeared to them two men in dazzling white. I, I believe they were angelic visit visitors. That, that's my interpretation of that scripture. And they said to them these words, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Don't you know that he is not here he is risen. At that point, those women went running back to the 11 apostles, the first of God's generals, the big guns of the day in the church. The men who had walked with Jesus, the men who had seen his miracles, the men who had, had ate with him and shared their, their, their challenges, their journey in life with him. They'd slept under the open stars by an open fire alongside of him. And they had done life with him. They'd seen him open blind eyes. They'd even seen him raise the dead. And they run back to these men who had just finished experiencing all this. And they're sitting in a room dejected. They're sitting in a room filled now with that challenge of doubt, disappointment, and powerlessness. That's what they're feeling. And the women come in. And you read this for yourself. In Luke 24, the women come in and says, He's not in the grave. He's risen. Just as he said, he's risen. Remember, he said three days I'd be, and then he would rise. Remember, it's, it's, he's, he's not, we've been there. These two angels came and, and the stone was rolled away and we looked in the tomb and the grave clothes are there, but, but he's not there. And the angels said, don't, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Don't you know he's not here because he's, he's risen. And you know what the Bible tells us in Luke 24, these 11 generals, there was 11, not 12 because Judas was gone, remember? These 11 generals, in the words of Luke, said they heard their words and saw them as nothing but idle tales. 
That's what Luke 24 said. And it's like, are you serious? Doubt was already gripping their heart. A sense of unmet expectation was already rolling into their soul. And they were struggling with all of this um, uh, you know, doubt and disappointment and confusion and let down and setback. And it's like, this is not what we thought was going to happen. This is not how we thought this thing would play out. And, and they're struggling with this. And they saw the report of these women that he is not there. He is risen as, a, as an idle tale. And I, I think that makes me feel a bit better about my doubts. If these 11 men struggled like that, I think, well, maybe I'm not so bad afterwards. You know, we can whip ourselves and crush ourselves because of our doubts that come into our life. But these men faced it. But then the story goes on and it says two of the disciples, Cleopas and another one. Now, he wasn't one of the big guns. He was just one of the other. He might have been one of the 70 that was sent out. But they're walking on the road towards this town called Emmaus. And Jesus is out and about. He's floating, hasn't revealed himself to anybody. He's just out there, risen from the dead, and he comes alongside of them. Now, he must have done some supernatural miracle because the Bible says they were restrained from recognizing that it was him. And he walks alongside of them, and they must have been having a real downer and complaining and whinging and said, what are we going to do now? Where are we going to go now? It hasn't worked out the way we thought. It's just not happening the way we had hoped it would unfold and so on. And Jesus comes alongside and says, what's this conversation you guys are having? And they looked at him, not recognizing him, looked at him and said, what, what are you, a visitor in town or something? Don't you know what's gone down the last couple of days? Don't you know that Jesus, the, the Messiah, the one who has raised the dead, opened blind eyes and unblocked deaf ears, don't, don't you know about, have you not even heard about this man, Jesus? And don't you know that they just crucified him? This man who did so much good and helped so many people, they took him, they nailed him to a cross, they crucified him, and then they stuck him in a grave. And now that somebody's stolen their body, and then they're getting all stirred up and upset. And then they say these incredible words. Don't you know, this Jesus who did all of these things, they've killed him. But we were hoping, we were hoping that he would have restored Israel at this time. We were hoping that he would have raised Israel from the ashes. We were hoping that he would have obliterated the Roman armies. We were hoping that he would have come forward. We were hoping unholy expectation. And eventually Jesus explains to them, you don't, you don't get it, do you? Don't you understand it's essential for the Christ to have suffered because he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. There is so much you're not getting. Lose your unholy expectation. And like Jesus, begin to embrace his prayer that says, nevertheless, not my dream, not my desire, not what I came to you to get from you, but your will be done in and through my life. You know, it's like, oh, we were hoping. And, and, and this, this whole thing of we were hoping, I think it's, it's like a cancer in the house of God. You know, we, we were hoping we would have sung this song this morning. And we sang that one again. We've sung that song 40 times this month. And I was hoping we could have done the old hymn one more time. So we did a hymn at Easter. Why couldn't we do a hymn the weekend after Easter? Because Easter's still not that far. I was hoping that today the lights wouldn't have been so bright. I was, I was hoping today the air conditioning wouldn't have been so cold. I was hoping the air conditioner would have been colder today. I was like, oh, my goodness. But we're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. Unholy expectation. You know, Jesus did not come to meet our expectations. In fact, it was our unholy expectations that derailed humanity in the first place. We are called to crucify our expectations, our flesh. 
We are called to crucify them and live for his purpose. Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, Jesus said, If you cling to your life, your dreams, your aspirations, your wants, your desires, if you cling to them and come to Jesus, if this is what I come to this is what I get if I come to Jesus, that you know, if you cling to that, Jesus said, you will ultimately lose your life. But he says, if you will just take a step of faith, if you will just take a leap of faith, if you will just trust me. And you will crucify your expectation and you will, you will shut down your own dreams and you will die to yourself and you will surrender your life to me, which is what surrendering our life means. I surrender my will. I surrender my freedom to you. If you will just take that risk, if you will just get out of the boat and trust me when I say you can walk on water, if you will just take the risk, you will find your life and it'll be way beyond any expectation you've ever had. That's really what this promise is saying. But we don't want to take the risk. We don't want to take the risk. What if God doesn't come through? Well, what if he doesn't? He's got a bigger purpose. And we've got to come to a place of trusting him. We have to come to that place of recognizing that this isn't going the way I'd hoped it had gone. But God, you're ordering my steps. And I'm trusting that you are guiding my every day, my every moment. And I will just stay walking with you. Even when I can't see your hand, I will trust your heart. Even though I go through the valley of the shadow, I will go through those valleys. Believe me, even though I go through those valleys, I will not fear because you are with me. Even though there's some great big boogeymen in that valley, I'm going through because you're my comfort and my guide and my source of supply. You know, I was thinking about John the Baptist yesterday. Yeah, if you ever really given much thought to this man, John the Baptist, he was a man who sacrificed so much. He lived in the wilderness. He ate locusts and honey. Well, the honey bit, I could get my head around. But he lived on locusts and wild honey. His clothes were made of camel hair. He didn't have fine linen. He just lived on the bare necessities. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 40 that he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. So this is the high calling of God upon John the Baptist's life. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. A voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the path of God. And remember when the Pharisees and the religious leaders came out and said, who are you? Who are you? What authority do you have to speak like this? What authority do you have to baptize people? And John just looked at them and said, I, I am the voice of one cry. He knew who he was. He knew what his calling was. He had a confidence in his heart. He knew that he was put on this planet for that purpose. And he looked them in the eye and he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And they knew what scripture he was quoting, Isaiah 40, because they knew their Bible. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You think about this man. He's out there heralding day in and day out and people are coming and people are repenting. He's, he's beginning to feel like God's using me in an incredible way. And then all of a sudden Jesus appears and nobody knew who he was. Even John didn't know who he was. But John had had a word from heaven that you will recognize him because a dove from heaven will come upon him. And at that moment, whether it was just a vision only John saw or whether it was a literal dove, I don't know. Maybe everybody saw the dove. Maybe only John saw the dove. But the dove came upon Jesus and John the Baptist looked and said, Behold. He was confident. No doubt whatsoever. His faith levels were at the max. He, he Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I'm talking about. 
He is the one whom sandals I am not even worthy to untie. I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. This is the He had confidence. He had life. But you know something? Before Jesus' ministry began, John the Baptist is jailed. He never saw one miracle. He never saw one move of God with the Messiah coming onto the planet. This is the one that he had heralded. You'd think the Lord would have been gracious and generous and just given him a little taste of something. But instead, he's jailed because he stood up for righteousness and condemned Herod for having another man's wife. And as a result, his wife got jealous and had him jailed, falsely accused and jailed. And John is sitting in jail. And at that point in his life, the great John the Baptist, who declared, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, who declared, this is the Lamb of God. His faith levels began to be rattled and shaken and disappointment began to set into his soul to the point where he said to his disciples, go and find this Jesus and ask him if he's truly the one. This is the same guy who announced Jesus as the one is now struggling with doubt. He's now wrestling with, why? Because of unmet expectation. I thought I would have been a part of this. I thought I would have even been one of his disciples. I I know I had the call of God to be the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I've heralded the way. I've paid a huge price. I've gone without so much. And now I don't even get to not only be one of his disciples, but I don't even get to see a miracle. And then Jesus sends a message back. And it's one of the most illuminating messages for people who are truly walking the narrow path that the Christian life calls us to. Jesus said, tell John this, blind eyes are open. The deaf hear. Tell him that even the dead are being raised. You tell John that he declared the right words when he said, I am the one. You tell John it's all happening, man. But tell him this before you leave. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That was the message of Jesus to John the Baptist, who's battling disappointment, powerlessness, and doubt in his life. He's battling unmet expectation. I, I, this is how my ministry ends up. This is how my life ends up. It's like we've got to come to that place, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It's the only way to survive. We have got to anticipate. We've got to anticipate. I will never forget the day. When my good friend, Danny Guglamucci, rang me. Tears, crying on the phone. He said, Marty, my son was killed this afternoon. He rang me within hours of his son dying and he said, my son was killed this afternoon. I said, what happened? He said, he was running a youth camp and he was out in the oval kicking a ball with a whole group of kids and, and a storm came in and a bolt of lightning struck him and killed him instantly. I'll never forget that day. But why I won't forget the day is not because he rang to tell me his son had been killed. I'll never forget the day because in the same breath, in the same sentence, he said, but Marty, I know God is good and he's always good. I don't understand this. You know something, folks? If we truly want the peace that surpasses all understanding, 
We have got to get past our hankering need to understand and start trusting. Start believing. Start hanging on to God, even if it costs us our life. You know, many of us know the promise that God makes a way where there is no way. Many of us know that promise. Many of us know the promise that he will put streams in the dry, barren wastelands. He makes a way that where there is no way, and he'll bring rivers into the desert where there previously was no rivers. He, he, we all know the promise, but I wonder today how many of us have actually seen that in our life. I wonder how many of us have actually experienced God making a way where there was no way. I wonder how many of us have actually experienced God bringing a river where there's been nothing but dryness, but suddenly because we've hung on for so long and we've trusted for so long and we've prayed for so long and we've gone through the pain for so long that we've hung in there long enough to actually see him carve a way through the desert and bring a stream, a well of salvation and refreshing and revival. I wonder how many of us have actually done that. But I also wonder how many of us have not seen that because we so frantically avoid the desert experience. We so frantically avoid the dry times, the dark times. We do everything we can to navigate around, to find ourselves on safer ground, to find ourselves in more comfortable places. We navigate around. I wonder how many of us have never seen him make a way where there is no way because we always approach our faith life with a plan B. If God doesn't come through, I still have that. If God doesn't come through with his promise, I wonder how many of us have truly allowed ourselves to be put in a position where if God doesn't come through, we are sunk. You know, when all is said and done, I think many of us come through our storms wondering why we felt so alone and why God wasn't there for us. You know, I, I think unprepared for and mishandled disappointment has shipwrecked more people's faith than probably anything else. I, want, I wonder if this is what Jesus was thinking about when he said to his disciples, in Luke chapter 18, he's telling the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow coming and knocking on his door, seeking justice. And then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge says. Shall God not avenge his own elect to cry out day and night to him? Shall God not, elect, not avenge his elect? Shall God not crush the enemy's purpose in your life? Shall God not come and thwart his ultimate plan shall he not do that well why hasn't he i've cried out day and night yeah and we've got to keep crying out because god promises that he will protect he will provide he will take us through the dark times and bring us out the other side he says shall god not avenge his own elect who cry out to him day and night though he bears long with them i tell you that he will avenge them speedily this is a promise from god's word he will but here's what we need to see. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Or will he find us all with a plan B? And you know something? You can't hide your plan Bs from God. You can hide them from your friend. 
but you can't hide them from God. You say, yes, God, I'll follow you. I'll have all the faith you need me to have. I'll just have this little thing over here in the corner just in case it doesn't work. And I will serve you with all my heart, surrender everything to you. I'll just make sure he doesn't see that. Um, God sees it all. God sees it all. Elisha refused to have a plan B. The opening passage that we shared this morning, he refused to have a plan B. He, he doesn't go back and put his plow in the shed. He didn't go back and say, I'll follow you, Elijah. But hey, if this gets too hard or if the road gets too narrow or the challenges get too many or the storms are too ferocious, then I can always go back to farming. I can always go back to what I had. So I'll just put the plow in the shed and I'll ask the neighbor to feed the oxen. No, he goes back and he kills the oxen. He doesn't even get a butcher to cut it up and put it all in the freezer so he could come back to that. He feeds the whole village with his oxen. It says they all ate. Maybe you can put that back up there, Ben. We can have a, another quick look at that, that uh, opening passage from, from 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah went and found Elisha plowing a field. There were 12, 12 teams of oxen in the field. Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over. Guess, let's scroll through towards the end there, Ben. Uh, I'll go, Elijah, I'll go back and think about what I'm doing. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. There was no going back in this guy's mind. It was a life of faith. It was, there was no plan B. It was just plan A. And if God lets him down, well, then so be it. He slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire, to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople and they all ate. Then he went with Elisha. Elijah. There was no going back. There was no plan B. When the Son of Man returns, will he truly find faith on the earth or will he find a bunch of religious people who go to church and just wish God would fulfill his promises so I can feel more comfortable? This is not a very comforting word, is it? Folks, I, I have a desperate concern in my heart. We are definitely living in the last of the last days. And the Bible says in those days, the love of many will grow cold. The love of many towards God will grow cold because of unmet expectation. Because of unholy expectation, because of disappointment, with the love of many towards God and the house of God and the purpose will grow cold and we'll all run back to our plan B. I, I really think we're going to see a great falling away in these days and it frightens me. And it frightens me because I don't want to be one of them. But I, I examine my own heart and I say, God, I'm, I'm preaching to myself today because I, I don't want to have a plan B. I want to trust you with everything that I have. I don't want to have a plan B that if it doesn't work out, I can go back to that. We will in our journey of faith face the very real possibility of embracing disappointment with both God and the people around us. As I wrap this up, in regard to our walk with people, just as we can come to Jesus with unholy expectation, I believe we can also relate to those around us with unrealistic expectation. Why does the Bible go out of its way to enlighten us that he is building his church with broken people? And broken people hurt people. I, I don't understand why he would choose us to build his church. But he has. 
He's building it with living stones. He uses broken people. He said to the Corinthian church, consider your calling. There's not many wise, not many noble, not many skilled, not many qualified, but I've chosen the weak things. I've chosen the broken. I've chosen the base things. Of this. So no one can boast and say, because of my, my skills, because of my certificates on the wall, I've got more degrees than a thermometer. And because of that, I have built the church. And it's all, he's done it so no one can say, look what I have done. It's, I stand back and I think, God, I don't know how I've got this far. I really don't know how I've got this far. And I say that honestly. I don't know how I got this. I'm just a boilermaker. I didn't even go to Sunday school. I was a boilermaker welder. And I've got no other qualifications. I've got no plow to go back to. It's just, it's just God and me. And he's just guided and directed. And, and, and he's using broken people. I don't know why he chose me. I, Joel was telling me, and Joel's on holidays at the moment, but Joel was telling me the other day he was listening to, I think it was Stephen Furtick. And Stephen Furtick shared a story of when he was at home with his family. He's just doing the family thing, looking after the kids, and, and he had a Christian TV program on, and there was this very, very well-known, theological, skilled leader, guru in the church world being interviewed in this Christian program. And this person was being asked, I don't know why he was being asked this, but this person was being asked, when you think of the name Joyce Meyer, what do you think? And he sang her praises and said, what a great woman of God she is. When you think of the name Joel Osteen, what do you think? And he again sang his praises. And then all of a sudden he heard, when you think of the name Stephen Furtick, what do you think? And he, if that's me they're talking about. So he goes into the lounge room and he listens. And the person just sat back and said, unqualified he said he held this man in such high regard he held him in, with such high respect and 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 he still does but he began to process that thought and thought but isn't that who jesus calls to build his church doesn't he call the base doesn't he call the broken I, I don't understand why he does that there are better people than me that can can help build the church but he for some reason chose me and i've tried to run away from it i've tried to do a jonah i don't know how many occasions but he won't let me escape i don't know how many times i've been swallowed by a whale honestly that's how i lost my hair it just it just the acid of that john I, you were talking about that last night i was one of those people i was swallowed by a whale and i was spewed out on a tudor street right out the front of this building and You know, why does the Bible urge us to bear with one another's faults? Because we all have so many. And because he's chosen to build his church with us, with all these faults, he's going, you're going to have to learn to be patient with one another. You're going to have to learn to tolerate each other's idiosyncrasies. You're going to have to learn to deal with people's personalities that rub you up the wrong way. And I, I honestly think the Lord, if you've got stuff in you that gets rubbed up the wrong way, he will send those people into your life and you go, I don't want you in my world. I don't want you in my atmosphere. You rub me up the wrong way. And it's like Jesus is going, when you learn to not let them rub you up the wrong way, I'll send them somewhere else to teach someone else the same lesson <laughs> well we've just got to learn the lessons you know let me say this I, I'm running out of time I haven't finished but I'm going to continue this theme next time I'm on but let me say this to you if you have never been hurt or wounded in church life then you haven't been here very long you have not been here very long and you stay long enough, you will get hurt, you will get wounded. You'll face the potential to be offended. 
but it's all because he wants to reveal something in you. I'm not myself at the moment. That's why I'm behaving badly. Actually, I'm really being my true self. And my bad behavior is being exposed so Jesus can get in there with his surgical scalpel and root out those things that push my buttons, that shouldn't push my buttons, that rub me up the wrong way. You know, you rub it, you pat a cat the wrong way, they hate it. They like this, their fur smoothed down. But if you pat them the wrong way and it, they don't like it, they get agitated. I grew up with cats, so I understand this. They do it. Sometimes we can be like that cat. It's like people rubbing us the wrong way. If they're rubbing you the wrong way, turn around. God bless you.